Commission for Education, and the President, Archbishop Timothy Paul, will be here shortly. Um, and I've, I've presented the same posture to these brethren as well. Now, I sent out a position paper to the distinguished panelists and others that Bishop Ellis deemed uh, significant to receive it. Most of you have not uh, read it, so I'm going to just, in the interest of time, because I'm a holiness preacher and I could get tuned up and we could shout, but I think I'm just going to talk to you for a few minutes, but I want to stay within a reasonable time frame. So I'm going to try to read this, uh, which I rarely do, but I'm going to try to read it to you this morning and hopefully you will hear it with your heart and your head. Life does not so much consist, in my opinion, and I heard this somewhere, of the breath we breathe, but of the things that take our breath away. You ought to stop and think, when's the last time something took your breath away? and we just left you gasping uh, with excitement and energy. The presentation I'm about to submit to you is a work in progress. I have been working on and through the development of these thoughts and reflections now for over 25 years and more openly and perhaps aggressively the last four or five. It is a work of faith and conviction, a mindset I have unsuccessfully tried to either avoid or delay fully accepting. This presentation is part of my witness and testimony as one who desires to both minister and worship as a citizen in the modern world and be able to think as I do so. I write it as a person to whom the Christian church, particularly the uh, Pentecostal charismatic community, has accorded honor, rank, and the privilege of leadership in the Episcopal office. It comes thus from the life of a bishop, a pastor, an evangelist, and a Christian diplomat whose vows at the time of ordination and consecration included both a promise to defend the faith and to guard the unity and sanctity of the church. I should like to say before you read any further, or before I speak any further, that you will hear nothing in this theology that should be considered anti-Christian or that undermines the powerful work of the cross, the deity of Christ and his substitutionary death, or the shedding of his precious blood for the remission of sins. You will read nothing that challenges the fact or hear nothing that challenges the fact that Jesus, uh, the fact of Jesus' virgin birth, that he suffered and died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he was buried and rose again and is presently seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where he ever intercedes for the saints and ultimately will return to receive into eternity with him the finished uh, work of, of uh, Calvary demonstrated by his unconditional love. And contrary to what you may have read, I don't know how many of you would have read the uh, Washington Times, I, I did give a two and a half hour interview, but you, as you know, if you've ever worked with journalists, they miss, miss uh, quote you very often. I do believe in uh, hell. Uh, first of all, I'm I know too many church folk not to believe in hell. I do believe that uh, there'll be some folk there. And uh, that's an, another, uh, another discussion. And there is no way to God but Jesus. He is the exclusive way to God. And, uh, but he includes anybody and everybody. So I don't, I don't put Muhammad or Buddha or anybody else, and I think you all would know that, uh, even categorically where Jesus Christ, the Son of God and only begotten, is. So to correct that, uh, that misprinting. Uh, as a fourth-generation classical Pentecostal preacher brought up in the tradition of holiness or hell, convictions and consciousness, I will admit that over the last nearly 30 years since coming to the larger charismatic world, and after graduating from high school and then moving to Tulsa to attend ORU, I finally come to the end of the road, or perhaps I should say a turn in the road, with regard to my presupposed thinking about God, the universe, and how I relate to Him in it, especially with regard to heaven and hell, 
the purpose of the church and my role as a minister in it, doing the work, as Paul said, of an evangelist. I've preached to thousands, leading them to accept and confess Christ. I've fasted from as little as half a day when I was a little kid to as many as 40 days as an adult, seeking the anointing to reach lost souls, bring people to deliverance, and, of course, a saving knowledge of Christ. I've preached to hundreds of thousands, both in person as well as millions by way of television and radio. I've ordained deacons and elders and installed pastors and helped to consecrate bishops and recorded successful albums and CDs and written books and hosted some of the largest conferences and gatherings of the people of God. However, in the midst of all my work and my unmitigated commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and my life's dedication to the ministry of his great gospel, I have come to a most liberating and encouraging realization, both through scripture and through personal revelation. I hope you'll bear with me as I, as I, I'm going to come across slightly philosophical, but also uh, theological and, and scriptural. This revelation was put best in words while I was hosting a live national Christian television program. And my guest was the great missionary evangelist T.L. Osborne. Some of you may know him. In the course of this interview with one of the greatest soul winners of the 20th century, he blurts out a statement that burned into my spirit in a way no other single statement has in my over 45 years of being a born-again Christian. The statement was, the whole world is already saved, Carlton. They just don't know it. And I said, wait, whoa, whoa, say that again, uh, Brother Osborne. He said, the world is saved. They just don't know it. That thing started working on me. And I had him to repeat it a third time. And that is on record, it's, and, and I've spoken with him since that time. According to my subsequent studies of scriptures to verify this statement as a true and a most powerful and inspiring revelation, I had to face the fact that not only does the world not know it, but most of the evangelical church doesn't believe the world is already saved and just doesn't know it and needs to be informed. Um, Let me reread that again because that's a complete sentence that I interjected. According to my subsequent studies of scripture, to verify this statement as a true and most powerful and inspiring revelation, I had to face the fact that not only does the world not know it, but most of the evangelical church doesn't believe it. And therein lies the greatest deception, in my opinion, the enemy has ever convinced the world of. Second only to uh, deceiving Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In the biblical and classical theology... Salvation is sometimes pictured in a restrictive sense, belonging only to those who respond in faith. And there's a number of scriptures that you all know and I do to support that position. But a more careful study of scripture will reveal that salvation is also, and perhaps more importantly, or more comprehensively pictured in a universal, inclusive way in which God is redeemer of the whole world or creation including all human beings. And there's a host of scriptures, Philippians, Colossians, Revelation, what have you, to support that position. Christianity centers on the person and work of the God-man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the touchstone and power of all truth. Any seeming truth that does not glorify Him as such is counterfeit or only partly true. I earnestly stand for the right of of uh, private interpretation, judgment, and guidance of God in, in an illuminated conscience. Yet at the same time, I desire to apprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge, the truest and most accurate perception of who God is. Now, there are fewer matters more urgent in a pluralistic culture than the centrality, and I would add the centricity of the cross. 
the meaning of the cross and resurrection is not only that God loves, but also that he has the power and the will to overcome evil. Not just personally, as Jesus did, but to do so universally or cosmically and bring victory out of what could only be described as eternal defeat. To believe that such a God would or could permit a single soul he created to be destroyed or even eternally separated from him is a contradiction in terms. It would also be an inadmissible defeat for God. Just a common knowledge... Uh, common sense knowledge of the sovereignty of God would make it almost impossible to be reconciled to the thought that God could have created a world or and man or mankind if in fact he foresaw hell as an eternal destination for any he created in his image and likeness. It would mean that creation is essentially a failure and the earth project a farce. Now some of these things are stunning to us but I have, I have been in holiness for all my life my, my grandparents, my father's father and mother, built the second church of God in Christ in our city. The third physical building was built by my uncle and aunt who started a Sunday school class in a chicken coop. But my grandfather and his wife died, as far as we know, out of the will of God. They both backslid and became alcoholics. They were holding his preachers. My, my grandmother could pray to they said she looked like she was my mother said she looked like she was two or three inches off the ground. They fasted and prayed and sought seven children. My daddy's the eldest. They were impoverished. They would go off and hold revivals and preach out churches, leaving my father there to take care of the children. Three of my dad's brothers are dead, and um, three of them are alcoholics. My father has always preached. And I remember my grandmother, my grandfather, and how I always wondered if I'd ever see them as, quote-unquote, saved people. They backslid. The night before my grandmother died, she played the dogs. She, she gambled there in Southern California. So it was difficult for me coming up in holiness to see. And at their funeral, I had to assume, as we all would, my grandfather and my grandmother are in hell. And my father wrestled with that all his life. Though they had prayed and fasted and taught us holiness... They couldn't make it. My grandfather was a good-looking man, half Indian, a Native American, half Af African American. And eventually, uh, you know, kind of high cheekbones, sort of green eyes, smooth, wavy hair and skin. And eventually he got caught up chasing women. And they were chasing him back. And he backslid. And when he did, my grandmother got discouraged. And ultimately she backslid a couple of years later. They died, as far as we know. Still addicted to drugs and alcohol. And they're, I just buried one of their sons who was also a preacher. My Uncle Gibby. Now this is yeah, just, just, just a prime your thinking. I was at his funeral along with the bishops and leaders of the church. And we were all there. His body. All four of his ex-wives were sitting in the crowd. He struggled with wine and women all his life as a preacher. He preached out two churches. And, was, and the Thursday night before he died... He called his last wife and apologized to her for being abusive. She now pastors the church that he, second church he founded. And, and then he was staying in the basement of his youngest brother, who pastors the Kojic church in San Diego and has now had a stroke and is in a nursing home. My dad's youngest brother. Uh, but he was staying in his basement and then called one of his old deacons and said, uh, let's go out. I've repented. I'm ready to start all over. Let's go out and find another building. I want to start my third church. He would found a church and then confound the church. Drunk. Taken from the pulpit sometimes. 
in, in uh, handcuffs and go to jail. This was my uncle. I had to preach his funeral. He, is not, he was dead. He called that, that deacon on that Saturday night. They found him on his knees the next morning dead. So I had to bury him. And uh, some of you may have heard me tell the story. And I remember at his funeral, everybody was standing up talking about Elder Pearson. And amen, we thank God, amen, for Elder Pearson. Amen, we know Ella, amen, Elder Pearson. We all have memories and, uh, of Elder Pearson. We all knew Elder Pearson. And they would sort of dance around the fact that my uncle Gibby, G Gilbert Pearson, struggled with women, struggled with wine, barely stayed saved for long periods of time, in and out, up and down, struggling. But we didn't want to deal with that as we eulogized them. So they just skirted around it and eventually said, uh, at the end, they said, Amen, we know, Amen, that, that Bishop, uh, that Elder Pearson accepted Christ as his personal Savior. And then they'd sit down. That was the way to say, and there's a slight possibility that he may have made it to heaven. And one after another, they'd get up and say that. Finally, the Holy Ghost spoke to me while I'm sitting in that chair and said, I wish I could hear somebody say something about the gospel at this man's funeral. I said, well, Lord, they're all saying that he accepted Christ. He said, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you or I or my uncle accepted Christ. The gospel is that Christ accepts us. He came to show us God's love. And he said, I want you to tell the people that when you got up. So I did. And I said, man, my, my, his youngest son was sitting over here on the front row, grazed, eyes, eyes glazed, high on drugs. I brought him up on the platform. His daughter, his brother, his sister was sitting behind him. They took the church. And I wondered, where is holiness taking us? And I, I, when I met my particular church, and I asked some of those pastors, where are your children? How many of them are stretched out on drugs? How many are strung out on drugs? How many of them are in alcohol? How many are backslidden? What do we do? What are we leading to with all of this presupposed knowledge about the gospel of the Holy Ghost, about casting out devils and rolling in the floor and praying with people? And then at the end, might we miss it? If the righteous shall scarcely be saved. I've always had that fear. We might not make it. We might not live holy. So we sit in the service, brushing the tears away, rocking and praying, believing or assuming that our loved one is in hell. My daddy wept. He's 76 years old. He said, son... I've always wondered, but if what you're saying is true, my mom and daddy are not in hell. I said, well, dad, you know, I hope they're not. The way I understand it, Jesus saved them completely. And, uh, but they sinned. And I'll tell you more about that when I get down through here with, with, well, let me just tell you now, because I don't know how much time. There's two words that I'm using for sin. There are many in the scriptures. And John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He used the Greek word hamartia, which means offense. He taketh away the sin, not sins, the sin. The basic Adamic offense of the world. The whole world, not just the church. He took it away. Now, if he took it away, unless he's an Indian giver, he doesn't give it back. He took away the offense. Nowhere in Scripture does it say he gives us that offense back. He took it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The penalty of our peace with God is upon Him. You don't make your peace with God. Jesus made our peace with God. By His stripes, we are healed. If that in fact is true, and God's Word does not return to Him void, then the sin problem is, has disappeared. The debt has been canceled. The sin of offense has been washed away. You cannot offend God. In fact, you'll never really know that you're free from sin till you actually know that you're free to sin. Now, am I giving people license to sin? No, they're sinning without license. 
And you and I are all subject to missing the mark. And that's the second word I want to use because it's used in 1 John uh, 2, 1 and 2. 1 John says, Beloved, I write unto you that ye sin not. He used the word hamartano, which means to miss the mark. But if anybody does sin, miss the mark, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One, who is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word he used was hamartia, our offenses. And here's inclusion. And not only ours. That's where I get inclusion. And not ours only. But the sins, offenses, of the whole world. Mind you, ladies and gentlemen, the first verse he uses the word hamartano. If any of you miss the mark, and all of you have, do, and will, all of us do, if any of you misses the mark, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation for our offenses, and not only our offenses, but the offenses of the whole world. If, in fact, Jesus died to redeem the world, then he redeemed the world and said it is finished. Now, the world doesn't know it. The church somehow doesn't believe it. But we've got to recommunicate this message to inform the world, not transform them. Jesus will transform them. He did that. But we are to inform them. And then when they hear this truth, they will reform their life. Let me tell you where that comes out of because I'm deviating again. The psychological deterioration on us who are in the ministry, who believe that we're supposed to get this world saved, is beginning to spill on us. We sit here this morning in our collars and in our... And our, our clerical collars, our black suits, we are consecrated ministers, elders, many bishops. We all have churches and ministries. We all have children. Most of us are married. We all struggle with stuff. We all struggle with identity. We all want to be somebody. We all want to be loved and respected. We all would like to have a big, beautiful church like this. We all want to pastor, preach, teach, win the world, win lost people. But we're so busy trying to approve each other and please each other. It's difficult really to reach a lost world because the frustration is among us. I want you to like me, approve me, validate me. And by the way, that's not why I came here. I came here because I was invited here and I love Bishop Ellis and I love you. And I do want your love and acceptance. Whether you like me or like what I preach anyway, I'm still your brother. There's nothing you can do about that. I'm still a born again child of God filled with the Holy Ghost. And I'm on my way to heaven just like you are. But I'm not coming here so I can get a preaching engagement in your churches. That is not at all on my agenda. In fact, that's the last place I want to preach. I want to preach outside the church. That's my point. I want to reach some people who wouldn't darken the door of any of our churches. I want to go to the other sheep. And I hope you will help empower me to do that. And reach people who don't attend Azusa. And who don't watch me or anybody on TBN. And who may never come to any of our great conferences. Who are not interested and do not feel that we're relevant. We've got to somehow reach outside the walls of the church. And reach other sheep and other lambs. Under the anointing. Nobody under the Holy Ghost anointing of our group, in my opinion, have, or my, uh, that I know of, has gone into the Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish world with respect. And they're receiving me. I've been preaching in Jewish synagogues. And they want to know, Bishop Pearson, do you want to evangelize Jews? And I say, yes, I want to evangelize everybody. But don't, don't get evangelization mixed up with proselytization. I don't want to convert you. I simply want to convince you. Now hear me, saints. I have wanted to save this world so bad and felt obligated to do it. How many of you flew on an airplane down here and felt that you should have witnessed to the one sitting next to you and didn't? Or pass out tracks in the hotels and restaurants? If you think all these people are going to hell, why don't you witness more? And why doesn't your church witness more? Or have you assumed that because broad is the way that leads to destruction, most of them going to hell anyway? 
So just let him go. There's nothing you can do. Or do you really feel the weighty burden to communicate this gospel between being a husband and a father and a pastor and a bishop and an evangelist and an administrator and an employer between loving you and hoping you love me back and working with the brethren? When do I have time to reach a world? When do I have time to spend millions of dollars going to Africa, Asia, India? And will they all be lost if I don't go? Is that burden on my shoulder? Most of us can't change the, the, the crack house across the street. Most of us haven't won our community, our block where our church exists. And yet we are called to reach the world. And I'm not refuting that at all. But I'm saying, what are we really doing? Have we lost sight? And out of all these years, I've been with, with the top preachers and leaders in the whole uh, Christian world. I've been in among them and shared with them and sat with them. Anybody from Catherine Kuhlman, who's in heaven, and I only saw Bishop Mason once when I, in 19, he died in 1961. But I remember seeing him as a little boy in the Church of God in Christ. I preached on most of the nation, nationwide television programs and know the founders and leaders and been in and among the brethren and had breakfast with Billy Graham and lived in the house with Earl Roberts and or stayed in there and I've been around and I'm still saying, Lord, what are we here for? Are we having the impact that we're supposed to have? And what do you want me to do with the second half of my life? I'm 50 years old. What now? What do I do next? How can I reach more people? I think that's really your heart. I believe every one of you really have a heart to have an impact on this world. How do we do it in the 21st century if we don't change some things? How do we do it better? How do we do it differently? How, are we, how do we become more thorough? Just a common sense knowledge of the sovereignty of God would make it almost impossible to be reconciled to the thought that God could have created a world and man or mankind if in fact he foresaw hell as an eternal destination for any he created in his image and likeness. It would mean that creation is essentially a failure and the earth project a farce. Moreover, a God who deliberately allows the uninterrupted existence of endless and eternal torments, it's not God at all, but maybe more like, like the devil. If the atonement means the reconciliation of God and man, or man to God, and that's really the only thing it can mean, then it must end in universal salvation or redemption of mankind. I asked somebody the other day, I said, do you think God is worse than Hitler? Hitler burned six million people. But God, who is love is going to burn several billion forever. Now, there's no anger management courses in heaven. He has, he's had 2,000 years to nurture his anger. He says, I love you. I died for you. I gave my son for you. And you better love me back because if you don't, I'm going to torture you forever. I love you. But if you don't love me back, in essence, to hell with you. You are going to hell, and you'll never, ever get out. Now, you better love me back, and you better love me right. And you better hear the gospel right. You better be baptized in the right name, and don't you dare smoke. Watch how you wear your hair, what clothes you wear. Watch whose name you're baptized in. You better do it right. I gave you my best, and if you don't accept me, you're out of here forever. Now, essentially, that's what we've said. If I had a choice, no way. If you tell me if I don't love you, Bishop, I'm going to be tortured forever, I'd say, well, love you, I believe you. 
you know, I, I, if, 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 if the alternative to me loving you or accepting you or believing you is torture, you got me, Jack. I'm going to be in your camp. But that doesn't mean I love you. That doesn't mean that I'm moved in my spirit to live holy. I'm just scared of hell. I don't want to be tortured. And I'm saying that is not the gospel that Jesus intended for us to preach about him. Because there's no love in there. Perfect love casts out all fear. Fear hath torment. Jesus redeemed the world. And inclusive in that redemption was every human being on the planet. This is very interesting. Let me, let me read a conversation between uh, Robert Schuller and Billy Graham. Uh, on May 31st, 1971, during an interview with Robert Shuler, Billy Graham made statements in a conversation that would indicate that he does not necessarily believe in the singular means by which salvation is granted and the relationship that salvation has to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the gospel that he preached. The conversation uh, begins, Dr. Shuler says to, to, to Billy Graham, tell me what is the future of Christianity? Now, this is just in 1997. Dr. Graham says, well, Christianity and being a true believer, you know, I think... There's the body of Christ, which comes from all the Christian groups around the world or outside the Christian groups. I think that everybody that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're, cons whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. Now, this is Billy Graham. What God is doing today is calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from Muslim world or a Buddhist world or the Christian world, or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts they need something that they don't have. And they turn to the only light they have, and I think that they're saved and they're going to be with us in heaven. Dr. Schuler then says, What I hear you saying is that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into a human heart and soul and life, even if they've been born in darkness and have never had exposure to the Bible? Is that a correct interpretation of what you're saying? Dr. Graham says, yes, it is, because I believe that. I've met people in the various parts of the world in tribal situations that they have never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible, have never heard about Jesus, but they believed in their hearts that there is a God, and they tried to live a life that was quite apart from the surrounding community in which they lived. Dr. Schuler said, this is fantastic he would say. I'm so thrilled to hear you say that. There's a wideness in God's mercy. And Dr. Graham says, there is. There definitely is. Now this was put on the webpage of a man that was very angry at Dr. Graham for saying this. He said, Dr. Graham makes several statements that simply cannot be reconciled with the message of salvation that he has preached in his entire life. I sat with Dr. Graham at the governor's mansion in Oklahoma City. When the Oklahoma bombing took place, I, the governor had asked me to receive him while he went to see, receive the president. So I left my church and went and sat. I had breakfast with Dr. Graham. I cut his breakfast up for him. He was shaking so and in so much pain. He said, it hurts to even hold a pen to write. He said, after 50 years of being in the ministry, I come home to this. He said, you young guys have it a lot easier than we did. You can get on supersonic jets and be anywhere in the world in a matter of hours. He said, for me to go overseas years ago, I had to get on a boat, a ship, and it took me three weeks sometimes to get there. I couldn't stay for two or three days or weeks. I had to stay for months sometimes away from my wife and children. I've been all over the world. I've really, in many ways, left my wife and children alone. And now I'm, I'm aging and I'm looking at the situation the way it is today. It almost looks like the world is worse than it was when I started, as if my ministry has been non-effective. I said, oh, Dr. Graham, God has used you tremendously. You're passing the torch on to so many others. And I tried to make him feel better about himself. But I knew in his subconscious reality, he's saying, what is this worth? 
when we get through, if all these folks are going to hell, after we get through trying to get as many of them saved, then there's a whole other generation, and the generations are getting further and further away from God. Then we've got to start all over again. I nearly lost my children, my wife, my sanity, trying to preach this gospel, and things seem to get worse. Jesus, did you save this world or not? And if you did, what is my responsibility? Tell them that I love them. I've forgiven them. I've redeemed them. I've reconciled them. Tell them that at Calvary, I knew they'd be who they are and do what they've done. I knew they'd sin. I knew the capacity. I knew the propensity. And I covered their offense. And if they would believe this, they would have peace among each other. I don't think we'd be dropping bombs in the Middle East right now if this gospel had been properly preached to the ends of the earth. We're very angry because Cain and Abel couldn't get along because they weren't sure how God, whether or not God liked them. And many of us are sitting here today. We're not sure. First of all, we want the bishops to like us. The state mothers and church mothers want the bishop to bless us. We want to be ordained and consecrated and affirmed. We want speaking engagements. I want you to like me. I want you to love me. I want you to respect me. But you might not. And we think probably God might not either because the righteous shall scarcely be saved. Where will the ungodly appear? Peter's not talking about eternal life, by the way, in that place. He's talking about the torment and the persecution of the church in the first century. But we're so afraid. It's hard to trust a God who says, Go ye into all the world, and also says, Love not the world. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel, but don't love the world. Neither the things of the world. Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate. He who loves the world is an enemy of God. But I gotta, you love the world that you sent your son, but I can't love the world, and I should go into them and preach, but I don't love them. They're my enemy. The world hated me, Jesus said. It will hate you. All these mixed signals. If the world's going to hate me, and they hated Jesus, and you told me not to love them and to separate myself from them, how can I go into them in love and reach them for Christ? Think of the mental torment of trying to sort through all those variables. And that's what Carlton Pearson has been doing. That's what I've been thinking. That's what I've been praying. And when I've come to the conclusion that, in fact, Jesus Christ did redeem the world at Calvary, that God was reconciling the world, 2 Corinthians 5, not the church, to himself in Christ and has now turned over us the message and ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Not imputing or computing, not holding sins against them. If God does not count men's sins against them, why are we so comfortable doing it? Is the world redeemed? One, one other interesting uh, thing I'd like to read to you is from a statement by Brother Hagen, uh, Brother Copeland. The only reason I'm saying this is because many of you are saying what I'm saying. You just don't know you're saying it. Many of you believe what I'm believing, but you're not going to tell anybody because you've seen how I've been publicly pummeled. I've nearly lost everything. Several thousand members, offerings dropped, 20,000, 30,000 a week. Had to, had, to, had to refinance the ministry. Some of my dearest, nearest, most treasured friends won't even speak to me. church folk not the Jews and Hindus and, and Buddhist church folk they don't call me a Christian we can be mean mean to each other Brother Copeland says this in, in, on, on page uh, May 30th of his devotional he calls it tell the good news his scripture text is 
2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing, as King James, their trespasses to, unto them, and hath committed to us the word logos, the logic of reconciliation. He says it this way, and this is real short. Very few unsaved people today, and I would say unregenerate people today, have ever really heard the good news. Why, says Brother Copeland, because too many Christians are busy telling the world that God is mad at them and telling them that they're terrible and wrong. Some call that good news, but, it, but it's not. And it's not what God has commissioned us to share. He's given us the word of reconciliation. In italics, word of reconciliation. He sent us, watch this, to tell the news that God has restored harmony and fellowship between himself and men. Italics, all men, not just believers, not just the people in your church, but everyone. That's right. The worst old reprobate sinner in the world, Brother Copeland says, is every bit as reconciled to God as you are. Look at Romans 10, 5, 10, and you'll see what I mean. It says that when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Reconciled. Italics. That word is past tense. God has already restored fellowship between Himself and the world. He did it when there was not one person on earth except Jesus uh, who believed in the new birth. He did it when the entire world was lying in sin. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, says Brother Copeland, God has cleansed and forgiven and restored to himself every man, woman, and child on the face of this earth. All any of us have to do now is receive it. That's the good word God has given us. That's the word we need to share with those who are lost. If we do it, if we'll do it, I can almost guarantee you they won't stay lost very long. Now, somebody came to my bookstore and said, what is your preacher? What is, what is, what is Bishop Pearson talking about here? What is he saying? What is all this crazy stuff? So some, one of my people went and got this devotional, which I hadn't read. This was only last year. And handed it to that person and read, they read that page. And they said, Brother Copeland is saying the same thing, basically. The key is, do you receive it? And if you don't receive it, will you go to hell? How do you receive it? Look at me, please, when I ask you this. How do you receive sunlight? How does it reach you? Do you acknowledge the sun, confess the sun? Even on an overcast day, you can get sunburned. Is the sun, S-U-N, more powerful than the S-O-N? Can it not reach you, whether you acknowledge it or not? Can the love of God and the restitution and reconciliation and redemptive work of the cross reach you while you were yet sinners? Well, what am I confessing? Well, the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord in heaven and earth and under the earth. So everybody's going to confess. Nobody can say he's Lord except by the Holy Ghost. So I guess the Holy Ghost is going to have to go under the earth and make him say it. But Jesus earned that according to Philippians chapter 2. He died. He took on the form of a man. Died on a cross. Even crucifixion. And because of that, God gave him a name that's above every name. And at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. In heaven, earth, and under the earth. I believe there will be a massive confession. And that... Anybody under the earth, if that means hell. A fire and brimstone, and the word brimstone is the Greek word theon, from the Greek word theos, which means God. If God's in those flames, if the purging, pur refining power of God is in those flames, even if you do have to go through hell, it can cure you. Because... If Jesus took the punishment for hell, if y'all believe he was wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities, if you believe that he bought the peace with God, then what else is there to discuss? 
He either did it or he didn't. If he took your punishment, that almost makes hell irrelevant except to be curative or purgatory, purgative rather than... Now, I know that scares you because y'all, I've preached against that for years too. But I'm just thinking, are all these people in hell? If it is, we're losing the battle. Ten minutes and I'm finished, I think. Uh, I want to tell you something about the the, um, church fathers because I learned this. This was after Bishop... Gaten, I'm going to ask Bishop Gaten, I said, what am I saying? Because I, I was calling this the gospel of inclusion. I had not studied universalism like some of you scholars had. I didn't know what it was. They start telling me I'm a universalist. I said, what does that mean? For the first 500 years of Christianity, four or 500 years, that was the prevailing position. That mankind would universally be saved. Church fathers, those are the men who agreed on the canonization of scriptures that we have today. Most of them were Africans, by the way, and I didn't know that either. Um, but there is a mention of, of um, and one of them, let's see, where, where is it here? I, I'm going to quote Clement of Alexandria, who lived uh, in, in, in the first century. Uh, according to uh, D, uh, Dr. J.W. Hansen in his book, Universalism, the Prevailing Doctrine, the first comparatively complete systematic statement of Christian doctrine ever given to the world was by Clement of Alexandria, A.D. 180, and universal salvation was one of the tenets. Hear it. Clement declared that all punishment, however severe, is purificatory, that even the torments of the damned are curative. Origen, another one of the early church fathers, explains even Gehenna as signifying limited and curative punishment. And both, as all other ancient universalists, declare that everlasting, aeonion in Greek, punishment is consonant with universal salvation. The quote, to quote Clement of Alexandria, he saves all universally, but some are converted by punishment, others by voluntary submission. Now, you don't have to like what they say. I'm just saying this is where my doctrine comes from, out of their thinking. Universalism was generally believed in the best centuries, the first three, when Christians were most remarkable for simplicity, goodness, and missionary zeal. With the exception of the arguments of Augustine, A.D. 420, there is not an argument known to have been framed against universalism for at least 400 years after Christ by any of the ancient fathers. All ecclesiastical historians and the best biblical critics and scholars agree to the prevalence of universalism in the earlier centuries. From the days of Clement of Alexandria to those of Gregory of Nyssa and Theodoret, uh, the great theologians and teachers, almost without exception, were universalists. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't study church fathers. A church father to me is Bishop Mason. I didn't go much past him. Bishop Crouch, S.M. Crouch, one of the great preachers of the coaching church. Who would have thought about the... And who knew they were Africans? That we had such roots in the culture. That we helped decide what books would be canonized and put into scripture. These men were not just universal reconciliationists. They were ultimate reconciliationists. That's even scarier. The first theological school in Christendom, that being in Alexandria, taught universalism for more than 200 years. To quote Clement again, we can set no limits on the agency of the Redeemer to redeem, to rescue, to discipline in His work, and so will He continue to operate after this life. All men are His. For either the Lord does not care for all men or does care for all. For He is Savior, not of some and and for others not, And how is he Savior and Lord, if not the Savior and Lord of all? For all things are arranged with a view to the salvation of the universe 
by the Lord of the universe, both generally and particularly. Gregory Nisa said, All punishments are means of purification, ordained by divine love to purge rational beings from moral evil and to restore them back to communion with God. I could make this available to you, and before you make a judgment, if you'll just read through some of that and do a little study. And, and, and the bottom line is this. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That's what we preach. Not just for it. He's not a suggestion. The gospel declares it. It doesn't suggest it. So I've been saying, and my, my situation probably is more homiletical than it is hermeneutical. It's the way I present the gospel. That may be offensive to some. I'm not trying to impress you. That, I don't mean that disrespectfully. But when I speak in the Jewish synagogue, and I say, I'm not here to convert you, not a one of you. I'm here to convince you. I don't need a decision. I would just like for you to become a disciple. The Bible never tells us once to go into the world and save it. It says go into the world and make disciples. The one thing you can say about it, if I died on my 50th birthday, if I died tomorrow or next week, I'd have, they'd have to go down in history saying at least he made them think. He made them become students because the police officers, the medical doctors, the judges, the governors, people all over this country, because the secular media picked up this story and they put it out there. I didn't. Christian television, Christian media has only slammed me. But the, the secular media is saying, maybe there's somebody making sense in what this man's saying. Maybe there's some sense to what he's saying. Maybe there's some hope for us. So they're starting to listen. They're starting to study. They're starting to debate. And I don't mind the debate. I welcome the debate. I welcome the discussion. I welcome the interaction. I love and respect what you have to say. I just want a little consideration. I so again respect Bishop Ellis and the African-American Pentecostal College of Bishops for allowing me to come before you make your judgments. I know some of the men who made statements about me publicly had not discussed this with me privately. They didn't hear my head or my heart. A rush to judgment, not all of them, but some of them who made statements, made it quickly before we had a chance to discuss it. And I wish we could have talked about it. And even if I don't like the fact that you're baptized in Jesus' name or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost or that you take communion only one Sunday rather than every Sunday, even if I don't like that particular thing, I don't have to make a scene about it. I still love you. You still love Jesus. You're still full of the Holy Ghost. Who cares about some of the things that we, 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 the dogmas that we allow to separate us? What do we agree on? We agree that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's our baptizer in the Holy Ghost. He's our friend and our elder brother. He's our Savior. How we present that may vary, but I will not cut you off as brothers just because you say it differently than I say it. And so, I know I started a little later, so I'm going to stop a little earlier and entertain some of your questions, which I know there are many. And many of the questions you would have asked are, are actually answered in this. And I can, I can make this available to you. Uh, you can go to the website and we can send it to you so you can just browse through. And then email me your personal questions if you want to. And I will answer them personally. I'm writing a book, and I'll scare you with the name of it now. The title of it is God's Not a Christian. Jesus wasn't either. Jesus was a Jew, God's spirit. Before there was Christianity, there was God. And my, my target is the, the unchurched audience. <laughs> not your district missionary. The unchurched audience. I'm not trying to have another revival in your church. If you'll let me go to the rest of the sheep and help empower me to go there with your prayers, you'll see a great harvest of souls coming to Christ, if that's your objective. Because I will present him to a way and every Jew, Hindu, or Buddhist that I've offered it to, or Muslim, they've said, uh, Brother Pearson, we don't have a problem with Jesus. 
We just can't handle his followers. What we know about Jesus, even Mahatma Gandhi said, you Christians have a document that is so powerful it could turn this world around, but you treat, you treat it as another piece of literature. I believe that we do have the message of reconciliation that can bring peace to this world. And I can get into all the scriptural teachings on that and, 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 and prove it further. But I wanted you to tell you conceptually and in general, comprehensively what I'm thinking. I've come to the conclusion that this world, hallelujah, is reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. And my responsibility now is to adequately, accurately communicate that great truth and let them know that they're free. Father, I pray that in these few moments, however haltingly I've attempted 